This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. It's very important that we make this investment today because, in fact, Canada has a wide body of fantastic researchers who actually have expertise in the area of virology, in the area of vaccine development, in the area of uh, treatment of, of, of viruses, and also all of the social issues that go along with, uh, with an outbreak like this. And so uh, today we're making an investment of $27 million to stimulate that research and support it. Uh, I want to thank, obviously, the researchers who applied, but also the CIHR who coordinated uh, a very, very fast process to get this money out the door. Over the past several weeks, our world has been upended by the coronavirus or COVID-19 pandemic. At my own university, we have suspended in-person classes and will be shifting to online-only classes for the remainder of the term. Given the head-spinning changes taking place in our society, there's a widely recognized need for immediate open access to the latest research and medical developments. Yet despite the fact that the public often funds research in the area, the conventional scholarly publishing model often places that information behind paywalls or subscription fees. Heather Joseph, the executive director of SPARC, the Scholarly Publishing and Academic Resources Coalition, has been advocating for years for more open access to scholarly publishing. She joins me on the podcast this week to discuss the response from publishers, funders, and other stakeholders to the urgent need for access to COVID-19 research and what that response tells us about the issue of open access to scholarly research more broadly. Heather, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. That's great. Why don't, why don't we start before we get into the coronavirus, COVID-19, and, and some of the issues around access to the latest research in that area that has become such a focal point for so many people. Perhaps you could, you could start off by just introducing listeners to both Spark and for those that don't know, some of the concepts that underlie open access. Sure. So Spark is actually an international advocacy organization, and we work on uh, promoting the open sharing of knowledge. And because we're an organization that's based in the library, uh, the libraries in universities and colleges, we focus mostly on um, education and research materials. So making sure that textbooks are affordable, that things like scientific and scholarly journals and related materials uh, can be accessed by everyone. And the issue, uh, you think that it would be, right? This is kind of material you think, huh, knowledge should be in the hands of anybody who wants to learn. Um, But we find that that's so often not the case. So we are promoting a concept called open access, which is essentially for um, uh, knowledge materials. It's a concept that anybody, anytime, any place should be able to get free online access to uh, the basic building blocks of, of research and education. Right. No, it's a, it's a, you know, it's an important principle. It's one that we've seen take hold certainly in in Canada, uh, and of course in the United States and, and around the world. Um, but there's still a ways to go. Um, why don't we talk uh, a little bit about what we're seeing take place right now with the scientific medical research that is a, you know, that has the whole world sort of waiting for the next paper and the next bit of information to help guide public health officials and the public more broadly. Um, that's of course the coronavirus or COVID nineteen. How accessible is the scientific and medical research today broadly, and then more specifically, I suppose, around this specific uh, disease? 
Yeah, I mean, the, so so much of this comes down to right. I think that that expectation that you know scientists have access to everything that they need to do the research, so they should just get on with it and you know speed it up, right? Get to those discoveries um, as quickly as possible. And you know, it's I think it's that's understandable because so much of the work of scientific research happens behind the scenes. Um, uh, but what we what we don't see when a crisis like uh, COVID erupts is that the simple truth, right? That to make progress, fundamentally, scientists need to be able to build on the work of their colleagues, of other scientists. They need to see what their colleagues are have found out or are finding out, mainly by reading about the research that they're doing in papers published in journals. And then they need to be able to build freely on that work, right? That's how science progresses. And that should be easy, right? But the reality is today that um, as it, with all scientific information and with COVID in particular, uh, scientists have access to only a fraction um, of the materials and specifically of the papers that they need to, uh, to, to make progress on, on this disease, on this virus. Right. And so on, on COVID, do you have a sense of, I guess both first the the reaction that we've seen with respect to researchers, funders, publishers in terms of trying to increase the level of access and where are things today? We're recording this on Wednesday, March 11th. I recognize things are changing rapidly, but right now at a time when we see things ramping up, what kind of access do we see and what has been some of the response from the various different stakeholders in this community? So it's really interesting. So I'd say the first response that we saw was like, what do we have that's available? Like what kind of information do we actually have on um, COVID-19, right? On this virus in specific. And so the kind of first phase reaction of um, not just the publishing and funding community, but also the university and library community was let's, you know, let's, let's get an inventory. Let's try to figure out what's out there, right? What should we be reading on this? And there's, you know, they ask, the estimate is that there's about 13,000 uh, journal articles that have been published specifically on uh, COVID-19, right, on this virus. And unfortunately, only a, less than half of those uh, papers are readily available for the scientific community to, to read. And the rest are held behind publisher paywalls. And that, you know, the idea of paywalls is familiar to anybody who's ever tried to do a, you know, Google search on uh, a medical topic that you're interested in. You kind of get this list of articles you think you might want to read. You click on the abstract that looks good. And then you say, give me the full text and bam, you get asked to pay $30, $40, $50 to read the full text of the article. Um, uh, uh, More than half of the articles on COVID-19 that exist today are behind those kind of paywalls, right? The kicker in this kind of issue is that in most cases, the science that those papers report on has been funded by uh, public money or taxpayer dollars with the expectation that it's going to be used to promote the public's health and well-being. So there's this fundamental issue that really got, I think, thrown into sharp relief when when COVID um, was highlighted. And second half of your question is, you know, so what, what's been the response? You know, how, how are uh, funders, publishers, you know, folks in the university community and research labs uh, dealing with this? I, I would say the, the good news on this is that everyone is aware that this is unacceptable. And so COVID is no exception, right? We've seen this when things like H1N1 or Zika 
pandemics uh, kind of came to the forefront, the first thing uh, the community does, and that includes, you know, the funders, publishers, et cetera, is to say anything that we've got, we'll take down those paywalls on. So there's lots of efforts uh, coming from funders. The Wellcome Trust, which is one of the largest funders of biomedical research, is immediately issued a statement calling on um, folks who have data sets and papers that relate to COVID to make their those materials openly available, right? To make them available under open access conditions. And uh, m- most of the major publishers from um, the Lancet, Nature, Springer, Science, uh, New England Journal of Medicine have created uh, portals um, and are making that content freely available. Um, so there's been, you know, I, I would say a decent response from the publishers. There's also a second layer of uh, places that researchers can go to that I think this is different than it's been in the past, right? That there's become a a growing culture of willingness of researchers to share initial findings before they're published in journals and post them on preprint servers. So preprint servers like MedArchive, our BioArchive have basic research they're, pre, they're preprints of papers. They're not final papers yet, but the ideas, the, the preliminary results of research are also available um, and folks are, are readily sharing those kinds of things. Okay. Let's, I, there's a, you've said that there's a lot there. So let, let's unpack a little bit of that. And, and I mean, right off the top, I just want to make sure that I heard this correctly because the, the stats were pretty stunning. So the public, of course, funding much of the research that's gone into this issue and into this area. And yet the starting point is that half or even more than half of the resulting published research isn't openly and freely available. The public's paid for it, but doesn't have access to it unless they pay subscription fees or per article fees for it. Yeah, on COVID-19 in specific, um, the uh, Cassidy Sugimoto and Vincent Lapierre just did an analysis that was published in the um, a blog on the, for the London School of Economics blog, and they, uh, they did the analysis of the COVID papers that are out there, roughly 13,000, less than half that are available openly. Okay. I mean, that, that, that's stunning just to think about that. If For those that are, are trying to become informed and make decisions, if they don't have access to the latest research uh, because they happen not to have subscriptions, they're going to naturally gravitate to the stuff that's open and maybe missing some important uh, pieces of, of evidence and data along the way. But that uh, translates to, you know, science in general, right? Like I, the, the statistics are, are, are actually kind of worse for general science. So COVID is in the biomedical realm that's got a higher openness rate, but still less than half. In general, only about 30% of all scientific papers are available um, under open access terms and conditions, which means 70% of the research are any scientist needs at any given time is generally behind a paywall. Right. Wow. So, I mean, that, I mean, that speaks to the broader need for open access. Just to, to close the loop on the on the response to date, though. So, there there is. it sounds like there is a recognition both from the, from some of the funders, you mentioned Welcome Trust, as well as the, some of the publishers, that that needs to change given, given the crisis that we're facing at the moment. And so they have made efforts to try to make some of that information openly available, essentially take down the paywall in the, in the way that we see sometimes newspapers do when there's an emergent issue taking place. Absolutely. And, and, and the, the, it's, it's, a, it's a, a, not a unique response, right? They, they tend to do this if there's a pandemic or a, a major uh, pressing urgent health um, 
issue. They, they'll make the articles and the data uh, that you need to validate the articles or build on also available. It's a first response. It's just widely acknowledged that that is how you accelerate progress towards treatments, cures, prevention, make this stuff open so that people can build on it and build on it as fast as possible. Right. And further to that, you mentioned that certainly some of the data that may not even yet have gone through peer review and, and may not have yet been published, there's an attempt to try to accelerate that availability and, of course, using various kinds of online tools to at least put the data out there with the caveat that it may not have been peer-reviewed yet, but uh, there's a bit of a race against time to try to move as quickly as possible on these issues. Absolutely. I think, you know, anybody who's looking at the COVID pandemic and saying, why, you know, why, you can't move quickly enough to A, get a vaccine, and B, find ways to treat this, is thinking, well, for, you know, heaven's sake, like any data that might be of use should be out there for folks to be looking at. Even if, you know, we don't know if it's, if it's related to COVID or if it could potentially help us. We think like, yes, of course, you know, make it open. Like if you've been testing a drug on something that's similar to COVID that could possibly be a treatment, can, can, can I, who's a COVID scientist, you know, have access to that data to see if it will apply in this case? You know, you just, it just sort of becomes common sense that, that this, is, this is the way that, that we make progress. Right. And do we know if these changes essentially taking down the paywall? I mean, of course, things are moving quickly. If we look back at the previous instances where there's been a similar kind of response, is that sort of change permanent or is it just temporary during a crisis period? And then they move the stuff moves back to the paywall and the, the, the more legacy paywall type approaches kind of return as being the standard. Unfortunately, it's the, the, the latter, right? This is a response in a crisis. Once the crisis is over, the things, things go back to business as usual. And it really is business as usual. The paywalls go back up and, you know, you need to, you, you need to, to, to kind of go through the same kind of dance that we're doing now to try to get access to this material. Okay. And you mentioned that, that in that, that so-called normal state, or at least the standard state for many publishers, the numbers in terms of access or lack of access are even higher, approaching 70% of, of the materials. Again, that the, and often, oftentimes the public has either paid for or contributed towards the creation through various funding mechanisms, and yet the materials themselves, the, the, the published articles, not available on a free basis to the public. That's right. And, you know, as an open access advocate, it, it pains me to, to, uh, to, to say that those are the statistics, but that is unfortunately still the reality that we're operating under. All right. So, so to try, obviously, as an open access advocate, you've been trying to change that situation. What are some of the, the tools or mechanisms that, that you and Spark and others in the community have been focused on to, to try to make changes so that the, the numbers begin to change in terms of what's made available under an open access system? So there's kind of two fronts that, that we're fighting this battle on. One is to make sure that uh, scientists and researchers have um, outlets to make their, easily make their articles available openly. So open access journals, right? Journals that never um, impose subscription um, restrictions. Uh, and there's lots and lots of those out there. And that's a growing um, uh, body and, and opportunity for scientists to publish in. Um, we also, on our university campuses and in our libraries, have open access uh, databases, right, that you can put copies of uh, your manuscripts, your final articles, uh, preprints of your articles, and make them available openly 
for, for folks to use. So kind of making sure that there's channels for uh, scientists to easily share their work is one way uh, that we've been um, promoting this. Okay. And, and before you get to the, the second part, can you, can you talk a bit about the kind of success rates? How open have the publishers been to researchers making preprints available or other kinds of pieces of information uh, or are there articles available in an open way in addition to publishing within their journal? That's a great question. So most publishers are open to them publishing articles within the journals as long as they pay them to, to make them open, uh, but they're really resistant uh, to a large degree at, to uh, allowing scientists to also make a copy of an article open in, say, you know, your library's database or um, a funder database so that it can be easily found. So there's a lot of pushback um, from, from traditional publishers on, on that, that channel. Okay. And when we're talking about publishers, for those that aren't familiar with the academic publishing world, I, my sense is that we're talking about a relatively small number of very large players, at least that, that tend to dominate the space. That's right. So there, the the journal marketplace is um, is big business for folks that, that that don't know. Right. I think one of the the premises that you know most people have is that well, this is this is scientific knowledge. Knowledge is meant to be shared and shared openly and freely. Um, journal publishing is actually big business. It's roughly a ten billion dollar a year revenue producing industry. Um, and all that money essentially comes from people paying to subscribe to journals. Uh, over the last 10 years, you know, a, smaller, a small percentage of that money comes from scientists paying to publish in journals. But in general, um, it's multi-billions of dollars that go into uh, people paying for the privilege to read, read science. Yeah. And in this case, pay for the privilege of stuff they've effectively paid for in terms of the creation of it uh, yeah. by having funded oftentimes researchers or grants to fund the research itself. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, in Canada and in the U.S., the, the largest source of funding for scientific research that's conducted is our federal governments, right? So the uh, federal governments pay taxpayer dollars, right? You, my taxes, your taxes go to fund research that is, we, you know, we're, we're saying that's great because the goal of it is to improve our well-being, our public health, and yet we have to pay again in order to see the results. Our doctors have to pay again to see the results. Researchers have to pay again to use the results, even sometimes read papers, their own papers that, uh, that, that, that they publish. Right. And it strikes me when you talk about researchers who essentially can buy themselves into open access by paying publication fees, that's yet another layer of payment. It's now because, of course, it's still the public that's ultimately footing the bill there. So the public is paying to create the research and then rather than paying for access is being asked to pay to be able to have access to the research that they've paid for. It, it's it's an interesting model. You know, it's it the in some senses, there's it there's more more fairness than the you know subscription model because there's one payment and then anybody anywhere can can actually get access to read and use uh, the information in those articles. But it it that specific business model introduces some concerns over who can afford to actually pay to play, right? What science gets published? So it's you know open access publishing in journals supported by that kind of mechanism is far from from perfect. So. Uh, part of what we're doing is also looking at other ways to move the needle forward. And that's sort of, I think, the second 
uh, half of the answer to your question is, you know, how do we do this, right? And, and, and how we can do this is to try to set the default, right? Flip the default for, for funders, whether they're private funders, whether they're national government funders, to say, if we pay for research, right, part and parcel of that research is communicating what you found out. So um, we are big advocates for national policies and funder policies that say, if you take our money to do scientific research, as a condition of taking that money, you have to agree to make a copy of what you found out freely and openly available to anybody who wants to, to see it. Right? Whether you publish in an open access journal or you are placing a copy of it in an online database or, or uh, archival repository, that's the, that's the requirement right, for taking, taking the money. Yeah. And how successful have you been in terms of establishing either funder mandates from some of the private institutions that help fund research or from governments themselves, where it's public dollars that are funding research? So we've, we've been making some really good progress. And I think this is where the, the real opportunity lies, right? So private funders from the Gates Foundation uh, to the Wellcome Trust to uh, the Michael J. Fox Foundation just announced like last week uh, that they have, they, they require that if you take money from them, you make articles reporting on the results and the data that's generated from that science openly available, which is fantastic, right? That, that's, that's been super helpful in setting the bar. National funders have been a little bit slower to move, um, but they have been moving, right? The initial uh, public policy tends to be incremental versus you know, a private foundation that can say, we're gonna go out with a full open access policy right away. National governments have been um, over the last decade, decade and a half, kind of saying, okay, we, we know that this is the right direction. So they've been requiring that you make articles available within 12 months after it appears in a journal. So it's not immediately available. They're still imposing embargo periods to try to protect uh, publisher interests. Um, but there are strong signs that, that, uh, that those embargo periods are really, they're not, they're not working. 12 months for biomedical information means the science is old as we're seeing in this COVID fight right now. Uh, and so more and more governments are either actively uh, moving to open access policies. The European Commission did it two years ago. Canada just announced that uh, by 2022, all publicly funded articles and uh, from Canadian funding will be uh, made available openly. And the United States is currently, the federal government here is um, uh, doing a, a full public consultation on the issue of potentially opening up access to research. Okay, so that's, it sounds like there's a lot of momentum behind this issue, and you mentioned yeah. the, the situation in Canada. I think you're, you're speaking to the open science announcement that came from our chief science advisor, uh, Mona Nemmer, that includes moving towards uh, open access for, for all publications within the next couple of years. That's right, yep. Okay, I mean, that, that's really positive. Just to, I wanted to make sure that I understand the, the, the Gates Foundation and some of the other foundations, they are already where you want or you're advocating that governments go, in other words, open access from the beginning as opposed to these embargo periods? Yep, they have what I'd call exemplar policies. So you know, Gates, for example, it, you know, for any money that, that Gates gives out, if you publish an article, it's got to be made available on day one immediately freely available in an open access journal or um, in a database. Uh, similar, same thing for Wellcome Trust and a whole host of, of private funders. 
Okay. All right. Well, that's certainly really encouraging. And in the current environment, as, as, as people grapple with, obviously, really heightened concerns with a, with, from a public health perspective, the, the, the reality and the necessity of having access to, this, access to information, particularly now information that the public itself may have paid for, so that smart decisions, evidence-based decisions are, are underlie the kind of choices that are being made becomes so critical. And uh, if, if, there, if ever there was a time to recognize the need to, to heighten the urgency towards moving towards open access, it seems like now, 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 now is when it is. Absolutely. I don't think we could. I mean, it's a horrible advertisement on the one hand, but the recognition that when something, there's a, a pressing issue, a pressing health concern, the first response in the scientific community is to openly share things so that science can move as quickly as possible. That should be the default for, for all science, right? All kinds of issues that we face, whether it's a health issue, whether it's climate change, whether it's you know sustainable energy, uh, sustainable agriculture, this is the way that science should be conducted in the 21st century. So hopefully this is a push to get us there. Yeah, let's hope so. Heather, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and stay safe. Michael, thank you so much. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at LawBitesPod or Michael Geist at MGeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Mm-hmm.